Get to the church blind! Get to the church blind! Go! Now! I'm Pete Mitchell, and he's Peyton Jones, and you're listening to Hardcore Church Planning, the companion podcast for the Church Planner Podcast and Church Planner Magazine. Each week, we'll bring you interviews from planners who are in the trenches making it happen right now. These active church planners bear it all, share their successes, their failures, and what they'd wish they'd known when they were first starting out. Listen in to discover how God is working in their church plan. Hey, church planner. Welcome to today's edition of Hardcore Church Planning. I'm super excited with my guest today. This is going to take the show in perhaps a different direction. Uh, it's going to make you think, and that's because you have a brain. And my guest today is Dr. Timothy Jennings, who is a board-certified Christian psychiatrist, master psychopharmacologist, lecturer, speaker, and author of the book, The God-Shaped Brain. In addition, he is a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association and the past president of the Tennessee Psychiatric Association and the Southern Psychiatric Association. So he's no slouch in his field. So welcome to the show, Dr. Jennings. Thanks. Glad to be here. Excellent. So you have written a book that caught my attention because so oftentimes we ignore the fact that God, as the designer, designed the brain and everything that we're talking about, every bit of ministry that we're doing goes through this medium called our brain. And so when someone comes along and writes a book called The God-Shaped Brain, How Changing Your View of God Transforms Your Life, I think now there's a guy I want to talk to. So uh, first off, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to faith. Well, I was raised in a, in a Christian home, and so I came up in the church uh, believing in God, but I had an inquisitive mind, and sometimes I was taught things that always didn't make sense, and then when I went into my education, there were things taught in a humanistic way that didn't fit with the Bible, and so it drove me on a real search to, to understand God's Word in the light of His design and how He's created us. And that ultimately led me to writing this book and other materials, because as Paul tells us in Romans 1, that God's divine nature is seen in what He has made so that men are without excuse, and rightly understanding science uh, will always harmonize with the correct understanding of Scripture. And that's what I've tried to do, is integrate the, the neurobiology, the science of God's design with what He's taught us in His Word. That's excellent. So uh, amazing. I mean, your journey, you know, uh, you, you obviously, you know, you've got all these credentials. You obviously know what you're talking about. How many years have you practiced in the field? Oh, I finished my residency in 1990. Wow. She's 1994. Medical school, 1990. Residency, 1994. And you also have a ministry called Come Let Us Reason. Tell, tell us a it's come and reason. Oh, sorry, sorry. Come and reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know you're you're going for the Isaiah one one uh, eighteen text. Come I, let and, us reason together. And, and you're like, I get that all the time, and I butchered that even. So, <laughs> so, so, tell us a little bit about the ministry. Yeah, come and reason a ministries, and it's uh, on the line at comeandreason.com. It is a not for profit Christian ministry that creates a lot of free resources for people that want to understand more fully how God's work and science integrate together in God's plan to heal and restore us back to His image. Awesome. So, uh, tell us a little bit about this book and, and why you felt it needed to be written. Well, the book really is about how our beliefs change us. Much of reductionistic 
um, humanism, science, psychiatry, you, and what we hear in the media is that you get certain genes and your biology, you've got these genes and you get these problems and it's kind of, we're wired this way and so forth. But in reality, the way God designed us, we are tripartite beings. We have physiology, body, which would be the brain part of the body, which is analogous to a computer's hardware. But we also have souls, and the Greek word for soul is psyche, from where we get psychiatry and psychology, and it is analogous to the software. It's your individuality, your identity, your personhood. Mm. For instance, you and I both have an English software package. English, the language we speak, is not genetically predetermined, nor can we open your brain somewhere and touch the language. We can touch the hardware, the circuits that process the language, but the specific language is something that's uploaded after birth. And the way we're designed, you're not genetically programmed, for instance, to play the piano, read ancient hieroglyphics, play chess. But if you decide to do any of those activities, your brain will branch out new connections, produce new neurons, make new circuits and new pathways, and your brain structure changes based on the direction of your mind. So your mind is really what governs the hardware, not the hardware governing the mind. Now, the relationship here is that the brain gives data input to the mind, but then the mind processes that and redirects the process of the brain. Simple example. You hear a bang. Bang, you startle. Your brain registers the startle, but then your mind interprets. What was that? And if your mind goes, if your mind goes, that was a car backfiring. That conclusion of your mind causes the stress circuits to calm and you relax. But it's the same, <laughs> same bang. It goes to your mind. What was that? And you go, that's a terrorist with a gun heading to my studio. Then your mind's interpretation causes your brain to activate the stress circuits, which activates adrenaline surges in your body. Your heart rate picks up. Your blood pressure picks up. And all kinds of physiological consequences come based on the interpretation of your mind. So it's the mind and what we believe in. When you take this understanding this process further, the picture of God we hold, how we worship, the thoughts that we think will determine what neural circuits are firing, and that determines a whole cascade of events from brain structure to physical health uh, and so forth. And so we are changed physiologically based on the God that we worship. Mm, I love that. So looking at other patterns where we say, for example, like you mentioned learning, right? Um uh, we, we, you know, if we learn something like playing the piano, the brain grows the dendrites, right? The, the little pieces, it, it, it creates those pathways so that it, it's choppy at first, but then it becomes smoother. So you're saying that actually not just playing the piano, not learning a sport, not, not developing your golf swing, but actually your belief in God will also develop the physiological tissue of the brain. That's, that's exactly right. And, uh, the, there are different views of God held within Christianity. I'm sure you're familiar with the, the Baylor uh, research that looked at views of God in Christianity and found that uh, in America, 32% of Americans view God as authoritarian or dictator-like, whereas 24% see him as distant or uninvolved. Only 23%, a little less than one in four, see him as a God of love, as Jesus revealed, benevolent and kind. 16% see him as critical, looking to find faults. identify themselves as not believing in God at all. Mm. And so in any Christian group, you know, 70 to 80% of Americans are Christian. And so if, if you put these data together, what that means is in any large Christian group, you have a variety of different God concepts being worshiped. Now, they may all worship God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they attribute different qualities or characteristics uh, w- uh, within that group, some seeing God as authoritarian and dictator-like, others as a distant God, others as critical, but some seeing him, as Jesus revealed him, a God of love. 
And what the neuroscience shows is that only worshiping a God of love is healing. And we can talk about how it heals, mm. but all other God concepts are damaging to our brains, our bodies, and our relationships. Holy even cow. If, even <laughs> if we're still worshiping a God that we give the name Jesus or Father, Son, Holy Spirit, if we attribute characteristics that are um, more like Nero, okay, yeah. and we worship a God that we need to be afraid of, one who is angry and vengeful and severe and, and we need to be protected from, who's not on our side, who has to be persuaded, these concepts of God incite fear and are actually neurobiologically, physiologically, and relationally damaging. So I've heard I've heard people say that if you believe in an angry God, you will become an angry person. Is this why they say this? So yes, and there's there's a reason for that. As I understand it, and see if you agree with this, I believe God is creator. He builds space, time, energy, matter, life itself. Okay, His laws are the laws upon which the reality functions. We Some of those laws, not all of them, but are like laws of health, laws of physics, laws of gravity, the protocols upon which reality is built. Um, when you deviate from those laws, there are consequences and destruction. One of those laws is the law of worship, which the Bible describes in this way. By beholding, we become changed. We fix our eyes on Christ, and by beholding, we become changed. We're talking about brain structure now, what we worship. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They preferred images made with their own hands, and their minds became depraved, darkened, and futile. This is a function wow. of the law of worship. Okay? What we mo- in psychiatry and psychology, it's called modeling. Our, we actually become like what we esteem, what we admire, what we view, what we watch, what we worship, changes us biologically and characterologically. So yes, this is true. That That's amazing. You literally just took scriptures that I've known, preached, um, you know, uh, beholding his glory. We, we, you know, beholding, uh, I know I'm going to butcher that, but we go from glory to glory. That's, that's yeah. the scripture you're, you're referencing that, that, that we actually, that, that's amazing to me. So, so these, these insights that Paul in the Holy Spirit, not understanding the the neuroscience behind it was actually saying things that we are finding physiologically accurate with our study of the brain. That's exactly right, and it gives you so much more confidence in the Scripture when it's rightly understood this way. Unfortunately, sometimes Scriptures can be interpreted in ways that are contradictory to God's character, His design, and the neuroscience, for instance. Um, some people can interpret scriptures like that. Well, if you worship a false god, then God uses his power to darken your mind, and he inflicts that upon you. But that's not actually what's happening. That What's happening is when you worship a false god, you become like that, and those lies and distortions and corruptions of character become yours, and that hardens your heart and darkens you. So it's a function of God's design and how he's constructed our beings to work and operate. Wow. So we had a <clears throat> we had a guest on here. <clears throat> a few months ago, excuse me, he had um, mentioned that that things like if you um, see God as the judge, justice, you know, not that those things aren't portrayed in Scripture, you know, but out of out of proportion, you will start to believe, um, like you rightly said, that God is an angry God, and if that is your prevailing view of Him, then the part of your brain that develops is called the amygdala. And that's where a lot of the anger and fears you mentioned. Um, and, and so, you know, it makes sense. All of a sudden you begin to understand why 
religious people are often some of the most angry, ruthless people that you can have on the planet. Um, now this applies to other things too. I mean, you know, some of the forces for social good, uh, that people believe socialism, communism, you know, that some of the greatest atrocities when underlying that they're trying to do things for the common good. Um, but, but what, what effect does grace and seeing God as loving and gracious, what physiological effect does that have on the brain? Yes. When we see God as Jesus revealed him, remember Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. Now, while people hear that, many operationally don't actually believe it or practice it, because many doctrines in Christianity teach a split in the Godhead where Jesus is our loving Savior who gave his life for us so much that he died for us, but he now needs to plead to his Father in heaven to to prevent his Father from lashing out in wrathful anger to kill us. There's many ideas like this that float through different sects of Christianity. These ideas cause a division amongst the Godhead, but the Bible was clear. If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his Son. God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only mm. begotten. And so you see that the Scripture teaches a a a uh, oneness, that there's a oneness in the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, are united in their character and their methods and their principles, and so we can have confidence in that. When we do worship a God of love, and the, and the neuroscience shows, meditating just 12 minutes a day on a God of love, at the end of the, for 30 days, at the end of that, with brain scans, we can see growth in the part of the brain where we experience empathy, compassion, and other wow. kinds called the anterior cingulate cortex. And not only do we see growth there, but because of the way the brain is wired, we we have lower heart rates and lower blood pressures because when you activate your love circuits, your love circuits calm your amygdala, your fear circuits. So perfect love, casting out fear neurobiologically. That's how we're wired. Okay, And if you ever notice that, when you've been a moment when you really loved another person more than yourself, you were in that moment where you experience your other-centered regard and you love that person. There's no fear in that moment. Your fear circuits shut down. But when the fear circuits fire and we let them take control, they actually impair the love circuits. Okay? Wow. And there's a tension there in our brain. And so only by coming back to worshiping a God of love are we transformed to be like the God of love. And I'll give you some evidence of that. Uh, in, 19, in the 1990s, it was 1994, remember the, the terrible massacres in Rwanda. Rwanda was a, a mostly Christian country. I think 85% of the country is Christian. Uh, 56% were Catholic. I think 30, uh, uh, 28% I think were, were um, Protestant, and I think 15% were Seventh-day Adventist Protestant. And uh, within a few months period, several million people within four months were slaughtered, and the primary killing zones were churches. They were killed in the churches. They would run in, and then the pastors or clergy would run out and get these killing squads that would come into the churches and kill the people who were there for sanctuary. And in the aftermath of this massacre where these Christians were killing Christians, and they, they first— um, members of every denominational church, Roman Catholic, Protestant churches, Adventist churches, Baptist churches, Methodist churches, uh, every denominational group had people convicted of war crimes. And what they discovered was that it broke down ultimately in two groups. Those who worshipped an authoritarian dictator God participated in the killing, while those who worshipped a benevolent God of love like Jesus protected the refugees, regardless of denomination. Denomination... Wow and form of baptism, and how they took communion, and all these things didn't matter. The only thing that mattered in dividing the two groups was which version of God did you worship, and if you understand the law of worship and how we're made, that makes perfect sense, because we become like the God we worship. 
Holy cow. Like literally everything you just said in like the last three minutes, my brain just blew out one side of my head. You just blew my mind. So here, here's the, can I say that? See, now I have to validate that because I'm talking to you. <laughs> no, I get you. It's a metaphor. Now I get what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> so here, here's, here's, here's what I want to ask in regards to everything you've said so far about the development. What effect would say atheism or agnosticism have on the brain? Okay. This is an interesting question. Ultimately, you have to add, Christ said to the, Religious leaders of the church of his day, which was the Jewish nation, you search the world over for a convert, and when you find one, you make him twice the son of hell. Now, see, we're once the son of hell when we don't know God. We don't know him, we're disconnected from him, we're out of harmony with him, and thus we need reconciliation not to be a son of hell. But what happens when you go out and you convert somebody to a false view of God? Now they still don't know God, but they believe that they do, but they now they believe a false version of God, so they still have their ignorance of God to get over, but they have to unlearn the false view of God, so they're twice the son of hell. So if somebody's an agnostic, they're actually one step closer to God than somebody who's a religionist who's believing in a completely false version of God, like the Pharisees in Christ's day. Right. Wow. Okay? Amazing. So, so I, I have to say that to good Christian folk because a lot of people say to me, well, what happens if somebody doesn't believe in God? I say, I don't believe in God. I've heard about your God. I don't believe him. I say, I say, tell me about the God you don't believe in. And I allow them to describe them to me. And when they describe them, I've been so far always able to say, well, good for you because I don't believe in him either. Mm. That's what I believe in. Right. And what they rejected is they've rejected some distorted false view of God that any person who knows Jesus will also reject. Because Jesus himself said many false Christs will go out into the world. And many of these people who have rejected God have rejected some false view of God, and that's the only version they've ever heard. And so rather than just out of hand saying, hey, these people are lost, our challenge is to say, hey, tell me about the God you don't believe in. And then we analyze that and go, well, good for you because I don't believe in him either. But let me tell you about a different version. When I do that, they're often interested. Really? You don't believe in this God either, but you believe in God? Well, what God do you believe in? And it opens the door to now share a perspective of God that is very winsome. It often draws people. It has to be pretty amazing to have this scientific authority behind how the brain works and, and, and actually be able to show people, look, this, what you believe is killing you. It's actually killing you. It's, it's, it's literally killing you. It's making you unhealthy. And as a psychiatrist, I mean, that's what you deal with. I, w I was a psychiatric RN and, uh, w w I would see the effects of this. Uh, talk a little bit about, you know, your field and what you're seeing that brings people into the psychiatric hospital, because we know that there's different factors. We know, um, you, you know, more than, than I know for sure. But I mean, I did some textbook study, you know, it was part of my degree. And, uh, you know, we know that there's the nature and the nurture, but talk about the nurture side of that a bit. Um, the nurture side in regard to developing mental health problems. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So during early during childhood development, a child is born into the world with hundreds of millions of neurons more at birth than that child will have by the time the brain is eight years of old, age. For the first eight years of life, the brain is busy killing off neurons by the millions. Wow. Now, at first, that doesn't sound too good. But conceptualize this like Michelangelo's block of marble when Michelangelo gets it and Michelangelo's block of marble when he's done with it. When he's done, he has less marble, but he also has a masterpiece. 
The brain comes into the world prepared to be acted upon by nurture, by environment. Uh, neural circuits that are exercised and used will be expanded and strengthened and solidified. Neural circuits which are not used will be pruned back and or deleted. This is normal brain development. So during the first eight years of life, it's prime time for good, healthy, nurturing and parenting. you got loving environment, nurturing, good boundaries, teaching truths. You're helping to establish a really healthy neural network and a foundation upon which future character development forms. Unfortunately, if the kids grow up in traumatic homes, homes that are where there's abuse, where there's violence, where there's exploitation or where there's um, uh, uh, traumas from war or other things going on, then this develops significant fear and anxiety circuits are upregulated. Their capacity for reasoning, the uh, higher cortex that calms the fear circuits are impaired in their development. And kids will grow up with a much heightened sense of fear and anxiety and, and be prone to both uh, mood disorders like depression and anxiety disorders than if they hadn't had those developmental problems in those early years. And then when you have those problems, and this is well studied and, and there's multiple um, uh, long-term research that shows this, Children coming out of traumatic childhood experiences have not only higher rates of mental health problems, but substance use problems and um, obesity, hypercholesterolemia, and heart attacks and strokes, and they die younger than kids that didn't have traumatic and stressful childhood envi environments. So I think, you know, you tie that to scripture, woe to those who harm the little children. It's better for a millstone to be tied around their neck because this is a vulnerable period of time. So the you're talking about the nurture. It is critical to give those healthy, nurturing, loving, supportive, structured environments because it sounds the foundation for what happens to the rest of life. Now, I want to give hope if we have listeners here who came out of traumatic environments. The good news is your brain remains pliable and changeable. So if you're coming out of a traumatic environment, maybe a home where Christ was not known and you've come to conversion, you've come to experience Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you begin to practice his methods and principles, the brain continues to change now. We activate love circuits, fear circuits come epigenetics, how genes are being expressed will change. And we can experience through God's methods and experience in our life healing and transformation in healthy ways, even despite a traumatic childhood. That's encouraging because this this is what I'm thinking is a lot of the people that, um, you know, go into counseling or into treatment, um, often many of the, 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 you know, whether it's group therapy or the counseling is about loving yourself. And I know evangelicals in, in times past have really had a hard time with this because, um, you know, they say, oh, this is selling out to self-esteem and this and that. But what you're actually saying is, um, well, no, there's, there's truth in that. But what you're saying is that needs to come from God. They need to know how loved they are. You mentioned meditating on God's love for 12 minutes a day. And one of my mentors said something very profound that when he was, uh, going to a counselor, uh, he was a great achiever, um, has built amazing systems, trained tons of leaders. And, uh, his, this gentleman that he was going to for counseling said, you know, of all the things that you think God wants you to do and accomplish, there's really only one task you have. And he, I don't know if it was 30 days or 60 days or what it was. It, it could have been you for all I know, <laughs> but he said, you need to, Wake up every morning and not do anything other than meditate on the fact that you are a loved child of God. And to this day, my mentor says that absolutely transformed everything for me. That's right. And That's right. talk, talk That's to us a little bit about the gospel, because for common reason, I, I would imagine 
as a ministry, obviously you're there to promote the gospel. Our church planners are there to promote the gospel. Talk to us about how this whole concept of what you're um, presenting in the God-shaped brain ties into the gospel. My view is that at the center, always at the center, and only at the center is God. God has to be at the center. So 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, for though we live in the world, we do not wage wars. The world does. The weapons we use are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. Notice what we demolish. Every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 17, 3, life eternal is that they might know you, the only true God. The central core issue, and thus the gospel, the good news, is always number one, the good news about God. Mm. Who God? Satan is the father of lies, and his lies are primarily about God. Satan is not concerned about whether you're religious as long as you're worshiping his version of God that he masquerades as an angel of light pretending to be the one that should be worshipped. He wants us to do that, in fact. But the real problem is when uh, is when we substitute the truth of God for a lie. And this is what, so I think the gospel, the eternal gospel, we, we, t- we hear in scripture, the everlasting or eternal gospel, the good news that has always been good in eternity past, as well as will always be good in eternity future, is God is exactly as Jesus has revealed him to be, that he is the God who is love. And that love is what's transformation. We come back to that experience with him. And and then everything else is secondary. Under under the umbrella of that, well, he loved us so much that he sent his son that we can have salvation. But the salvation good news is only good news because of who God is. For instance, would it be good news that you get to live forever in a universe run by a God who runs his universe like Nero ran Rome or Saddam Hussein ran Iraq? That's not good news. The mm. good news is that we get salvation in a universe with a being who is like Jesus revealed him to be. And this is the ultimate good news. This is the gospel message. What is the number one opposition that you hear when you're reasoning with agnostics and atheists, and what's the answer that you give? Yeah, the number one problem I get is always related to some distortion about God and how he functions, Mm -hmm. that it doesn't make sense to them. It's contradictory to evidence. Things like, well, you know, a belief in God is based on faith and science is based on evidence, okay? And I and I tell them, well, then you you have a misunderstanding of what real faith is, because real faith is confidence or trust in a person, the person, this person being Jesus and God, and there our trust in them is based on the evidence that they've revealed to us. This is not a blind trust. So when it says in Hebrews that faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, the the, the, the Greek for substance is hypostasis. The first half is hypo, as in hypoglycemic and hypotension, um, and it means low or under. The last half is stasis, as is standing. Translated into Latin, it was substance, as in subway, subterranean, submarine. It means under, and stance means standing. Translated into the English, faith is our understanding of mm. things hope. And as we have understanding both of God, his nature, his character, so there's the comprehension part of understanding, then we enter into an understanding. We have an understanding with God. We have an agreement. And our understanding is, my understanding is, if I trust him with my heart, he, through Jesus Christ, provides what's necessary to heal and restore me. We have an understanding. Right. Absolutely. That is evidence-based. That is not blind. Well, I just believe, even though it doesn't make sense, and I know it's not true, I'll still believe it. That is, and that's what a lot of scientists think Christianity is, turning off your brain and believing nonsense. 
Right. And so you have to disabuse them that no, true Christianity is coming to understand the universe in the reality as God created it and his plan for healing and restoration, which is always going to be uh, evidence-based and beautiful in its right light. Amen. Well, what do you say to the atheist or agnostic who comes to you and says, okay, Dr. Jennings, I hear what you're saying, but the evidence I see in the universe tells me there is no God of love like what you describe. I'm looking at the evidence that I see. I'm looking at the the problems in the world. I'm looking at mental illness. You know, obviously that's your field. We live in a world that shows me that there is no God. And at best, I could only maybe believe in an impersonal force like Einstein did, or maybe there was some, you know, type of uh, theistic, but maybe deistic uh, being okay, so, in the universe. So let me answer this question, and, and it's it's amazing answer. So the Bible teaches that there is a God and that God is love. Now, love is not simply compassion or emotion. It's operational or functional. And if you use the Bible to define it, it tells you love is not self-seeking. If love doesn't seek self, then what does it seek? It seeks others. It's outward moving. It's the principle of giving or beneficence. This is love. And it tells us that God's divine nature is seen as what he has made. And so the Bible is basically saying this, that God built the universe to run on the principle of love. Now, if that's true, we should look into science and nature and see, is all are all living systems built on this principle of giving? Well, look around you. The oceans give their waters to the clouds, which rain over the lakes, forming land, forming lakes, rivers, and streams, which flow back to the ocean, a never-ending circle of giving upon which life is built. If a body of water separates and will not flow or give, it stagnates and everything, and it dies. Mm. Every breath you take, you give away carbon dioxide to the plants. The plants give oxygen back to you, a never-ending circle of giving upon which life is actually constructed to operate. If you deviate from that, tie a plastic bag over your head and selfishly hold the <laughs> carbon dioxide to yourself, which is transgression of the law, the wages of that is death. Every living system, you can see them all. They're, in my book, the God-shaped brain, I have a whole chapter where I outline many of these in nature, uh, even in our economy. For the economy to be healthy, the money has to be in circulation. If you take the money out of circulation, the economy dies. And so you can see that the scripture teaches God, who has loved, built reality to run on the principle of giving, and every living system in the universe runs on this. And if you break that, every system dies. And so I would say to you, the overwhelming evidence of science is that there is a God who's loved. Mm. You know, that's, that's powerful because, uh, when, when I'm asked that question, that's usually what I go to. So, whoo, I'm, <laughs> Dr. Jennings said that's a great answer. I'll stick with that. Well, my guest today has been Dr. Timothy Jennings. His book by IVP is called The God Shaped Brain, How Changing Your View of God Shapes Life. Um, there are uh, study guide questions. You could take your, your church plant, your core team, um, small group through this book, and it would be a powerful tool for evangelism. Um, and according to Dr. Jennings, this book will actually change your brain as well, which isn't a bad thing. It will be changed in the positive. Um, before we go, are there any closing comments, Dr. Jennings, that you would like to share? Uh, just that uh, as we understand God as the creator and come to harmonize our life with his design protocols, you know, the Bible says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. If a person had that plastic bag over their head and they were passed out but not dead and you took the bag off their head and put them in harmony with the law, what do they do? 
they revive. As we come to understand God and his design and harmonize with it, it always is revitalizing and healthy for us. And so I always want to focus people back on God, his character of love, and his designs because it's healing to their lives. Very good. Thank you so much for being on the program. Guys, if you want to connect um, with Dr. Jennings, uh, his website is comeandreason.com, uh, comeandreason.com. And uh, again, I said that a couple times since I butchered it at the beginning. But uh, normally, the very last thing we do on every show is we will uh, pit you against someone and say, if you and so-and-so got in a physical fist fight, who would win? But being as that you represent com, we need to change our question up a little bit. And normally we'll pick someone like, you know, depending on, on what, you know, we'll fairly match you, but I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little, I, I know you're going to take me aside after the show and say, now, Peyton, let me tell you what that's doing to your brain and your guest brain when you ask that question. So we're going to, we're, we're going to change it up. Um, at comeandreason.com, have you debated, uh, any prominent atheists or agnostics? Is that kind of what you do? Well, I would be I would be willing to do that. I haven't actually gone into a debate. I um, put up a video on YouTube a while back uh, confronting uh, Bill Nye, the science guy, um, showing that um, that the uh, premises upon which evolution stands are all, all the science supports the premises of creation, not the premises of evolution and uh, all the big three uh, premises. And so uh, I put that up on, on YouTube a while back. And um, I have um, uh, uh, given lectures to psychiatrists who, by and large, are agnostics and atheists, going through the power of belief and how our beliefs actually change us, and bringing in quantum mechanics and how quantum mechanics um, are involved in our faith and our prayers, and how we actually have quantum connections that that connect us to each other, and tying that back into a belief in a God of love. So. I've I've done this some of this presentation. Very good, and you know I believe I actually saw your challenge to Bill Nye online because I do follow many of these debates and different things. So um, I thought I had seen your name out there involved in that. So I hope he takes you up on it because uh, my money's on you, pal. That's all I'm saying. So again, my guest, Dr. Timothy Jennings, the book, The God-Shaped Brain, How How Changing Your View of God Transforms Your Life. And I really believe that reading this book is going to transform you and the way you think. So thank you again. This has been Hardcore Church Planning. Arnold, sign us out. Remember, if you are called to church planting, go hardcore or go home. You've been listening to Hardcore Church Planning. Hardcore Church Planning has been brought to you by The Church Planner Podcast and The Church Planner Magazine, which is available in the App Store for both Apple and Android devices. If you like this episode, leave us a positive review. If you didn't like this episode, we'll be happy to give you your money back.